Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Thomas F. Coleman, moderator of today's program. I'm the executive director of Spectrum Institute, a nonprofit organization promoting conservatorship reform. Many thanks to the Grown Ups Forum for hosting this program, which is titled Fee for All, How Judges Are Rating the Assets of Older Adults and Lining the Pockets of Conservatorship Attorneys. Our presenters today are Evan Nelson, Sharon Holmes, Rosalind Alexander Kasparik, Gloria Duffy, and Deborah Bookout. At the end of the presentations, we will have time for questions and answers. So during the presentations, please type any questions you might think of into the YouTube chat area, and they will be forwarded to me, and we will try to answer as many as we can uh, at the end of the program. First, before we have our, uh, our first presenter, I would like to take a moment to explain some basics of conservatorships. There are basically two types. One is a conservatorship of the person. The other is conservatorship of the estate. Today, we're focusing on the estate type, where a petition is filed with the court alleging that the target of the proceeding, that is the senior or person with disability, can't manage their own finances without court intervention. It's a drastic step. It's supposed to be taken um, cautiously, but all too often uh, it's taken uh, prematurely or unnecessarily. But once the petition is filed, then we have an entire lineup of attorneys that start to become a part of the process. The petitioner generally has an attorney. The court appoints an attorney for the target, the senior or person with a disability. If uh, a temporary conservatorship is granted, then that temporary conservator has an attorney. Ultimately, if a conservatorship order is granted, the permanent conservator has an attorney. And then there also may be a guardian ad litem who usually is an attorney. And the problem that we're addressing today is that once all of these attorneys jump on board in various capacities, they look to the court to pay for their attorney's fees out of the assets of the targeted individual, of the proposed conservatee or the conservatee. And uh, as you can imagine, these fees can add up rather quickly. Uh, the standards for these attorney's fees are vague. The judges are pretty much doing whatever they want and often awarding excessive fees. There's no checks and balances or accountability because of what I call a go-along-to-get-along, mutual back-scratching culture of the attorneys in the probate court. One day an attorney might be representing a proposed conservatee. The next day, in a different case, they may be representing a petitioner. On another day, they may re be representing a, um, conserva a conservator, or they themselves might be a guardian ad litem. So if, and these attorneys all know this, if they raise objections to the fees of another attorney, this could come back to bite them another case where their fees are challenged. So all too often, nobody raises any objections to any of the fees whatsoever. 
Um, so after we hear from our presenters, I plan to take some time to summarize, uh, wrap things up by identifying the problem areas with some more specificity and explaining how Spectrum Institute needs your help for us to conduct a major study of this fee-for-all so that we can make recommendations in a um, significant report to stop these abuses through changes in legislation or court, court rules or otherwise. So at this point, I'm going to turn over the program to our first speaker, who is attorney Evan Nelson, an attorney who's been involved in a case called the conservatorship of Catherine Dubrow. So uh, Evan, can you uh, share your remarks with the audience, please? Thank you, Tom. Uh, as Tom mentioned, I uh, have been asked to speak about one specific case that I've been involved with for a little more than three years at this point in time, and that is the case of Catherine M. Dubrow. <clears throat> a little bit of a background for Catherine. She is 94 years old. She has dementia without behavioral disturbance. She was married for 50 plus years, and her husband passed away about 20 years ago. She has five children, two daughters, and three sons who are all still living. After Catherine's husband passed away, her memory began to fail, and she made advanced planning documents to ensure that her plan for how she was taken care of in her last years could be adhered to. She created an advanced health care directive and a durable power of attorney, and she named one of her daughters as the agent for those two instruments. And then she created a, a complete family trust and put all of her assets into that so that her finances could be controlled as well. She had competency determined at the time that she created the latest trust. She had it notarized. She was assisted by an attorney in creating all those documents. And even later, she had a court-appointed attorney who looked at those documents and found no problems with them. As Catherine's dementia increased, there was one of her sons who thought he should have been the designated trustee in the trust. And that's where the problems for Catherine began, as this son then petitioned to have her forced into the conservatorship. Catherine's wishes were well documented. Her advanced planning documents all made clear what she wanted to have happen. And the initial court investigator reports also actually confirmed she didn't want to be conserved. She wanted to have family manage her person and finances. She wanted her matters to be kept private and not put through the courts. And she didn't want to incur the costs of a conservatorship. Mm -hmm. And there's no dispute of any of these matters. Now, unfortunately, there was a court-appointed attorney who at the time was charging about $280 an hour and had billed thousands of dollars to Catherine right before the conservatorship trial, which was arguably the most important part of this process, that court-appointed attorney was allowed to withdraw as counsel, and Catherine was left without an attorney to represent her at the trial. Without, without Catherine present, without an attorney there to represent her, and after waiving her jury trial right, Catherine was forced into that conservatorship that she had been clear she didn't want. And then, as Tom has mentioned, everybody got attorneys, and all these attorneys were being paid from Catherine's trust. And when I say everybody got an attorney, again, that's except for Catherine. 
As I mentioned, Catherine's initial court-appointed attorney charged $280 an hour, and that may sound like a lot of money to some people, but that's about half what the rest of the attorneys started charging. The court ordered that the son's attorney, the son who had created the petition to force his mother into conservatorship, those attorneys were paid in excess of $340,000 from Catherine's assets for the trial. As Tom also mentioned, because all the attorneys and the private fiduciaries involved in the case, they intend to submit large billings for payment from Catherine. And so they have no incentive to argue or object to anybody else's fees because those arguments and objections might come back against them. And so all of this just flows straight through and the court just rubber stamps all of these billings. Over a third of a million dollars for the attorneys who, who put Catherine into conservatorship against her wishes. The private fiduciary who was appointed as conservator then hired an attorney at about $450 an hour, and he billed more than $150,000 to Catherine's estate. The court appointed a guardian ad litem who's also an attorney, and he charges $450 an hour, and he's billed Catherine in excess of $100,000. The attorneys then took over Catherine's trust by having the court suspend her son who had been designated the trustee. And at that point, the court then appointed another attorney as the interim trustee. And that attorney charged $450 an hour or thereabouts. And that court appointed attorney acting as a trustee hired himself an attorney. So we had another layer of attorney on top of attorney charging $450 an hour. It, it really gets into absurdity. Um, it's, it's so extreme. Um, so this is the point where I was hired and I was brought into the case. When I came in, there were four lawyers and a private fiduciary, all fighting against Catherine and her four, four of her five children. And, and they're all being paid by Catherine. And at the same time, Catherine doesn't even have a lawyer. And then when I got involved, the attorney guardian ad litem, decided he needed an attorney too. So he hired another attorney. So you have attorneys on top of attorneys billing out at about $2,500 an hour in combined rates. And they all showed up to everything. For instance, the, the trustee and his attorney, they showed up to conservatorship matters that didn't involve the trust. No reason for them to be there other than to collect an additional $900 per hour from Catherine. So at one point, there were six attorneys costing Catherine about $3,000 an hour, and they were all fighting against Catherine's rights and wishes. That's what I was trying to do was fight for Catherine and fight for Catherine's rights and, and for her expressed wishes. The court finally did appoint an attorney for Catherine after about two plus years, two and a half years of the operation of the conservatorship. But when that attorney came in, he said that his role was very limited and he did not try to fight for Catherine's rights or express wishes. Instead, he just kind of jumped in with all the other attorneys. Um, I'm going to cut it down now and, and kind of cut it off. But for all of those keeping track at home, we have 11 lawyers, 10 of which billed at $450 an hour, all being allowed to siphon Catherine's assets to pay their fees that they incurred while fighting against Catherine's rights and expressed wishes. The total amount of attorney's fees in this one case is now close to $1 million. The only attorney who's advocated for Catherine's rights and expressed wishes is the only one who has not been paid by Catherine, and that's me.
And with that, I'll leave it over to Tom. Thank you. It's amazing you're still able to uh, smile um, as you go through this. I guess you have to because uh, otherwise it would just be enough to drive anybody crazy. So, um, okay, I'm going to um, uh, introduce the next speaker, um, who's uh, Sharon Holmes. Sharon is uh, an elder care consultant, and uh, she got involved in the, in the conservatorship of Teresa Jankowski um, and ultimately became her friend and close confidant, and she monitored her, these conservatorship proceedings um, uh, for several years. And I'd like uh, now, Sharon, if you could uh, share your experiences in the adventure of the conservatorship of Teresa Jankowski. Thank you very much, Tom. And I'm going to apologize in advance. Uh, I'm trying to get five years of court information into five minutes. So I'm going to read most of this just to keep me on track so I don't forget anything. But Teresa's case was very unusual from the start because she didn't have any family involved in this predatory attempt to conserve her of both person and estate. Things started to go wrong for Teresa when her longtime financial planner, who she trusted, insisted that Teresa write a will. Teresa told me that he got very angry with her as she decided to give all of her money to two dog charities. He yelled at her, and she had never heard him yell before. You are giving your money to the dogs? Teresa didn't have any living relatives. Her only family was her dogs. That is when I believe he concocted a plan to get the money for himself, knowing that she had no one to challenge him. He brought in a fiduciary that Teresa didn't even know to, quote, manage her money. They claimed Teresa wasn't paying her bills. We later got a hold of her records and found out that she was actually paying all of her bills early. But that fiduciary quickly took control of all of Teresa's money, stopped her from getting any mail, and only gave Teresa a few dollars a month to spend. Teresa was devastated, scared, and didn't know who to trust. The agreement Teresa had signed with that fiduciary stated that she could terminate the agreement at any time. Yet, when Teresa tried to terminate the agreement, the fiduciary quickly filed for a full conservatorship of person and estate. Teresa had multiple statements from medical doctors, the police detective for the Elder Abuse Division, and from several assisted living directors all stating she was competent. Even two lengthy exams by reports from a very reputable UCI neuropsych doctor. In the beginning, the fiduciary submitted only one paper from a doctor stating dementia, but this doctor was from the other side of LA. Teresa was in Monrovia. I guess they don't have any over there. This particular doctor was banned from treating children due to pedophile charges. Yet, the judge accepted his one-page letter and ignored all the other specialists. This paper was also used by the nurse at the assisted living property as proof of dementia. Ironically, 
the property Teresa was living in was assisted and independent living was not licensed for dementia. If that was a legitimate document, like a California 602 physician's report, it would have been illegal to have Teresa living in that building. And the nurse at the property knew that. She eventually got fired. Teresa had hired her own specialist, an actual elder law attorney. Yet the judge removed him from the case and appointed an 82-year-old attorney with a work history in the banking business. His work record didn't show any elder law experience. He worked for big banks in Pasadena. He told the judge on his first day in court, I believe my client needs to be conserved. Isn't that against his oath? What happened to his obligation to defend his client's wishes? The judge accepted the dementia diagnosis from the doctor with the pedophile charges and took away Teresa's right to hire her own attorney. Sorry here. The judge let this case go on for about five years. In the end, the original fiduciary who filed the charges against Teresa removed herself from the case to work on a famous celebrity's case that is currently in the news. Mm. Yet the judge allowed her to appoint another person to try and conserve Teresa. This judge allowed all of them to build Teresa's estate. The first fiduciary's attorney stayed on the case and continued to bill. The new fiduciary brought her own attorney. So now Teresa was paying for the 82-year-old attorney the judge appointed, all the expenses for the first fiduciary and her attorney, and all the expenses for the second fiduciary and her attorney. And the second attorney the judge appointed for the 82-year-old quit. The judge also left the case, but not until he approved payment in full for all of their buildings from Teresa's account. That is six people all digging into Teresa's modest estate. This judge also wanted the attorney Teresa had hired to return his worth a year's worth of billings. Teresa loved her attorney. He was the only one she wanted to get paid. Tom Coleman estimated the legal fees alone are about 350,000. This is legal theft against the elderly. Teresa was not rich like most people who are victims of predatory conservatorships. She's, her starting estate was only about 800,000, mostly the sale of her home. The judge allowed this charade of a conservatorship to continue for many years. Yet in the end, he reluctantly appointed the fiduciary that Teresa and her original attorney, Al, had wanted from day one. So all of this was unnecessary. You might be wondering why the original people were resigning from this case. Eventually, the judge moved on. The case headed in the right direction when I spoke up in court and I told the judge I was reporting what was going on in his court to the FBI and the OCC, the Office of Control of the Currency because I believed was, this was a part of a third banking scandal. The first scandals were in the branch offices creating fraudulent checking accounts. The second was in their loan division, charging rates and fees and docs after the docs were signed. They were fined billions. 
This third scandal, which had started to be investigated, was the Wealth Management Division. I believe this case was never about Teresa's money, but the overreach to get control of her person so they could keep her from being able to testify against the bank and a gross overreach by her financial planner. This may seem to be too unbelievable, but when you put it in the context of the corporate greed at that time, it was make money at all cost and we will look the other way. When I called the FBI, I told them I believed what was going on. I also told them Teresa worked her entire career for the FBI. She was one of them. She started in the mailroom at 17 years old and worked her way up to managing three floors in LA of the FBI. This was the game changer. Sadly, Teresa died this past October 18th. I told her before she died that her suffering in the last five years would not be in vain. I reminded her of Tom Coleman's words years ago when he said at a conference, remember the name, Teresa Jankowski. She will change the way conservatorships are handled in this country. I pray that day is soon. This case should have never been filed. And you can see Teresa sitting here beside me. She was a wonderful woman and never deserved any of what was happening to her. She deserved a content retirement and instead suffered the last five years. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon, so much for sharing your experience. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Teresa and having lunch with Teresa and Sharon, and we went to the zoo out here in Palm Springs. And I told her also that I would make sure that that what she was going through was going to be told to the world and that, um, you know, hopefully her experience would uh, merge with those of others and help cause reform. And the conference that I, I mentioned her name at happened to be the, it was in 2018 in Seoul, Korea, the World Congress on Adult Guardianships, um, in which I also chastised the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California and the California for Judiciary that in so many other areas have been progressive and helped bring about reforms and justice and so on. And for whatever reason, in this area, they all have a blind spot. And uh, hopefully, we'll, by shining light on it like we are today, uh, maybe we can create some movement. So next, I want to um, introduce um, Rosalind Alexander Kasparik to talk about her experience with her fiance, David Rector. I also had the pleasure of meeting both of them and working with them a few years ago on a voting rights aspect of her case. But today she's here to talk about the, the uh, overall case and the financial aspects. So with that, uh, Rosalind, if you could uh, share your and David's story, I would appreciate it. Sure, Tom. My name is Rosalind Alexander Kasparik. David and I met in 1984 at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. I was in grad school at Howard University, and David was one of very few Black producers at National Public Radio headquarters. Though NPR is a family of professionals, the handful of African Americans employed there in any capacity had a special bond. We had each other's backs. David was much loved and commanded the respect of his peers because he went the extra mile. 
He had an artist sensibility when it came to radio production. He was an accomplished photographer who had already shown his work at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C. In fact, his photos graced the halls of NPR at 20th and M Streets for years. On-air personalities and colleagues touted David's reputation as a producer, a producer's producer, who took great pride in his work. He harbored a deep love of jazz, film, and perhaps most telling, an encyclopedic appreciation for comics in all their superhero morality and glory. He biked Rock Creek Park <clears throat> most weekends in his beloved Silver Spring, Maryland neighborhood. He ran daily and took care of his mother for the last 20 years of her life with dementia. David and his mother had been each other's only blood family, summers with cousins and distant family members notwithstanding. He never learned who his father was and eventually stopped trying to find out. He was protective of his mother and refused to take her away from all she knew, even though it meant sacrificing his career. So he stayed by his mother's side in Washington, D.C., cared for her for years beyond the day she no longer recognized him. I graduated from Howard and returned first to Texas, then Seattle, and ultimately San Diego, California, in pursuit of my own career and work-life goals. Due to our special bond, my African-American colleagues from NPR always kept in touch. David was no exception. My late husband, Edward, was diagnosed with cancer from Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam and was in his last throes after a valiant three-year fight. David's mother passed away in the spring of 2004, and David lost his DC pulse. Ed passed away less than a year later, and my heart lost its strongest beat. While friends and family encouraged me to call if I needed anything <clears throat> after I buried my husband at Fort Rosencrantz, David simply showed up at my door. He'd encouraged me to marry rather than elope with Ed decades before, so my mother could be there as a witness. <laughs> David was one of our dearest friends. So showing up when we when I knew he'd never, when he knew we'd never call or I'd never called was what I half expected him to do. After a few years of us showing up cross country at each other's respective doors, David asked me to marry him in 2008. He left his 30 year career at NPR, planning to find a new uh, way into the film industry in Los Angeles. He worked, uh, we worked on setting up an arts radio station in San Diego's Gaslight Quarter, where I officed my marketing business. David cashed out his 401k, gave away everything he didn't want to carry to California, and took his lump sum to Wells Fargo, where he told the banker to name me as the beneficiary on his accounts. Well, I thought it was sweet that he wanted me to be able to use his money, should we ever need it. I encouraged him to see it as savings. David wanted to wait to get married until he found his second career. Ed had left me a comfortable nest egg, and David and I were still both ambitious, healthy, and eager enough to check a few more career dreams off our list before retirement. On a sunny March morning, David was reading the comic strips in one of the three newspapers he bought habitually every day at the corner store at Point Loma. I was preparing breakfast before we headed into the office. <clears throat> David was laughing, and then he wasn't. He grabbed his chest and nearly fell as he tried to stand from the dining chair. I had lived through one heart attack with Ed, so I knew. I told David to lie down and dial 911. He said it hurt too much as he stumbled out the door telling me he'd meet the ambulance at the curb. We sat on the curb across from the waterfront and David told me he was glad I was with him. He was bent over in pain and could barely speak. I told him there um, 
was no other place I could be. I'm a given, I said, you're given. The ambulance took David to the closest hospital, UCSD. I followed in the car as I had innumerable times with Ed to hospitals all over North County. David had only been in San Diego for eight months. I got to the hospital and got my first shock. We weren't married yet, so I had to wait to be with David. I was asked who David's next of kin was. I gave the admitting nurse the name of David's cousin. When I was finally allowed to see David an hour or so later, he was hooked to machines weak, but in fantastic spirits. He joked with me, told me he'd be fine. And in fact, the doctors concurred. He'd had an aortic dissection, they explained. Corrective medicines were being pumped into his system and his vitals were being constantly measured. They found a tumor in a kidney during the CAT scans and they thought it was the culprit. Although UCSD kicked everyone, even spouses, out of intensive care at night, David got better for the first two days. By the third afternoon, however, his CO2 levels dropped and he was placed on face mask oxygen, which he kept pulling off. The next morning, they wouldn't let me into his intensive care room. I was told David had endured a brain injury and was intubated. His prognosis plummeted from going home to rest on our deck to doubts as to whether he recover enough to walk or speak again. I called my mother to pray and I called the only relative David had who I thought might be able to fly out and help. My mother and my family came. David's cousins did not. The cousin I thought was next of kin waited exactly six months, barely responding to my request that he make the, wet, the trip west on my dime. He then called the acute care rehab in which David was placed and told them to remove me from David's bedside where I sat every day, all day. I couldn't leave David so completely alone. He was still intubated, still unable to move or speak, although he'd opened his eyes and was no longer comatose. The guards literally tore me from David's bedside as we both cried. I had no choice but to find a lawyer to get back to David. He would not survive in that place or any place if he was left so completely alone. I called lawyers until I found one who could see me that day. He filed papers to ask the court if I could be made David's conservator. The first and only question the judge asked the lawyer I hired to get me back to David's side was, how are you going to get paid? They pointed to my assets and David's now frozen accounts. In three months, the guardian had lied and had set David, sent David a balloon for his birthday and charged him a few hundred dollars for it. I'd gone through two lawyers and called 52 more in my attempts to get David removed from the draconian nursing home in which the guardian had lied him and court-appointed conservator had him placed. I'd spent all and any of my discretionary income and was going through my savings paying lawyers to remain a party of interest in David's care. The guardian ad litem, the conservator, and the lawyer billed David for every penny he had in his accounts. The judge rubber-stamped their invoice over my protestations. Since there were, was no more money to pay these people who had caused David and me nothing but misery, they asked to be removed from his case. The court continued to pay the guardian ad litem, and I was now good enough despite leering depositions, accusations, and all manner of cruelty to David and me to become David's temporary conservator of the person. He had an estate no longer. Getting David out of the nursing home system and back home required another two years of incompetency, uh, incompetent competency test and stonewalling from the guardian ad litem. It also cost every dollar I could find. David shared the last 10 years of his life with me after he fell ill. Beyond the obvious unconditional love, we realized new ambitions, like winning David's right to vote and trying to get out of um, 
get one of my kidneys transplanted so he wouldn't have to undergo dialysis thrice weekly. Thanks to the guardianship system, we were broke most of the time and struggling the rest. Things could have been very different if the conservatorship system hadn't so completely cost every asset we had just when we needed those assets the most. We could have bought more therapy, gotten David's specialized wheelchair faster. Maybe I wouldn't still be paying for all the borrowing two years after David's death. We expected compassion from the attorneys and the court. We expected them to value life and how it gets lived. I expected empathy, but instead watched as the court and its appointees lined their pockets with the wherewithal we so desperately needed. I had to focus on David. He was physically locked in, but it was my privilege to recognize the freedom and the grace, and even that. We had friends and family, my family, who gave us love, and legal vultures who stole all of our dollars. Shame, shame on the inhumanity of the latter. Thank you. Thank you, Roz. Um, it's just amazing how, you know, the, he had a, David had a modest estate, you know, $90,000 or something like that. So, and Teresa had, you know, six to $800,000 and others have larger, but the system seems bent on draining as much of the assets as possible. Roz wasn't good enough to take care of him. She would have done it free of charge. And they still would have, they could have used that money towards David's care. But no, she, she became good enough only when there was no money left. This is despicable and another example of the injustices of this system. Um, next, I want to um, introduce uh, Gloria Duffy. Um, I uh, uh, came across her name when I saw that she wrote a commentary uh, in a newspaper about um, kind of legalized uh, elder financial abuse within the court system. And I read it and I said, this is someone I need to meet. And uh, we did, got in contact. And Gloria has been working with Spectrum Institute as an advisor. I suggested this forum and she jumped right on it and said, yes, let's do it. So Gloria has her own story to tell about uh, her experience with her mother's conservatorship and this fee-gouging, asset-draining monster called conservatorship. And uh, so I'd like to turn it over to her now to, uh, to share her experience. Well, Tom, thank you. And thank you for putting this panel together. I'm so, so sorry to hear all of these stories. Uh, just each one is so heartrending. Uh, I'm not going to be quite as organized, I think, as some of the other panelists, but uh, talk a little bit about a different angle on the conservatorship story. Uh, the focus has mostly been on abusive conservatorships established perhaps to gain access to conservatives' assets. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about a different angle, which no less illustrates the problems with courts and attorneys and the fee-for-all phenomenon, as Tom has identified it. So a different kind of a case. What if a conservatorship is needed? What if, in, uh, for example, family members who are trying to take good care of someone who's very elderly with life-threatening health issues that are not being addressed, with hoarding, with other dangerous living conditions, misappropriation of their assets going on, tax issues, 
possibly tax evasion, possibly illegal activities. What if family members are trying to protect someone uh, consistent with their existing estate plans to try to uphold it and respect it? Um, so uh, what if multiple attempts to address the situation uh, directly through collaborative means uh, have failed to elicit cooperation from family members or others who are involved in undermining uh, someone's uh, well-being or estate plan? Um, what if um, a conservatorship is sought? Uh, what if there's an ethical and upstanding and uh, 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 a court-appointed attorney who ha is an ally for the family members trying to do the right thing? Uh, and not churning and, and in fact, minimizing their, their charges and so on. Uh, what if there's an evaluation by a renowned psychological expert who indicates that the individual is prone to exploitation and is not likely able to engage in self-care? What if there's a longtime attorney uh, who seems to have been participating in the uh, unethical situation going on? And what if the court works appropriately to dismiss that attorney. Um, what happens then? Well, it's basically the same story of fee-for-all, uh, even when uh, the, uh, the needs are clear and the ethics of those involved in pursuing a conservatorship are, are good. Um, because it's contested, um, I, it takes it, it takes a year and a half to get a conservatorship. Um, attorneys are brought in for the person by the person causing the problems. Uh, to, the longtime attorney brings in another attorney to sort of stand in their stead and uh, continue fighting uh, the conservatorship and continue protecting the situation that's going on. Um, then uh, a whole bunch of other attorneys jump in, uh, and then the family members trying to protect their family member have to bring in other attorneys, including one from the East Coast, to try to break through the local mutual back-scratching fee-for-all of the attorneys in the local area, just to bring in somebody who doesn't have any connections or any incentives uh, in, in the local uh, county. Um, and this goes on for a year and a half. And finally, it takes a judge from another county uh, sitting pro tem to come in and say, uh, I have read all of the materials on this case. There is a an attorney here who is not representing their client that purports to be representing a client. The client themselves, uh, the proposed conservative says they're not representing them. I'm going to dismiss that attorney and establish the conservatorship. Um, so the pressures are to nominate a professional fiduciary as a conservator. And so that's what happens. Uh, and uh, the arguments used are, uh, well, there's, you know, professional fiduciaries are neutral parties and, you know, they can do better than a family member would do. Uh, what happens then is that the fiduciary uh, is negligent and uh, allows the conservatee to 
do things which end up with her having a fall and breaking a bone and so on. And uh, so finally, uh, that person is represent after, you know, taking quite a bit of money is uh, replaced by a family member. Um, and they're about a million dollars in legal fees throughout this process. Uh, and then and when the family members had said from the beginning that they would be willing to serve and that there was no need for a professional fiduciary. And um, so then what happens? Well, uh, the legal activities continue. Uh, anything, uh, those including individuals who have created the problem that caused the need for the conservatorship can continue to litigate and jump in, raising objections to everything, um, mostly without, uh, all without any basis, objections that the court never uh, recognizes and never acts positively on. So turning and turning and turning, a total of 14 attorneys, actually, um, many, many false statements, copious false information filed in court that don't even make sense. Essentially, continuous perjury. Uh, you know, I can't see the conservatee. Uh, I don't get to see the conservatee. Well, never, you know, what does that mean? You've seen them 113 times in two years. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, and so um, constantly having to sort of bat away these specious and, and you know, uh, statements where perjury takes place in the court because none of them are actually true or verified in any real sense. Uh, so... Um, once I wrote that article that Tom uh, Tom uh, discussed, uh, which was called uh, "Court Should Not Be a Venue for Elder Financial Abuse," uh, which was a little less than a year ago, you can find it. It was published in the San Jose Mercury News and the East Bay Times here in the Bay Area. Things calmed down. A sort of shined a light on uh, what was going on. It it refers to the fourteen attorneys. It doesn't, uh, and the attorneys who every time a new attorney comes in, they bring in other people from their firm and they review the documents all over again, and then they bring in two or three of their colleagues from the firm and put them on the payroll for for the case. Uh, another couple million dollars in legal fees. Uh, uh, but it, it does, once the light is shined, it does sort of calm down. Uh, there is no meaningful judicial review of any legal fees. In fact, it's just, it is a rubber stamp. And, and I'll tell you one story that shows how absurd the rubber stamp is. A vexatious litigant is a person who is barred from filing matters in court because they do what, what it sounds like. They file specious uh, nuisance-type lawsuits. In, our, in, in this case I'm describing, um, the judge approved a, a fee petition from a vexatious litigant with basically nothing to do with the case. So somebody comes in, says they have served, in this case as a paralegal, although they're not a paralegal, uh, they cite an attorney that has monitored them. That attorney has been disbarred. And um, they just say, I get some money here. Uh, and the judge approved it, rubber stamp, along with everything else, without even asking, who is this person? Does this person have anything to do with this case? Is the person a paralegal or not? It's like somebody can just slip through, uh, you know, as a total financial abuser. 
Um, the attorneys, um, in this case, all of the estate plans are in place. There's a trust. Their assets are not only in the trust, but they've been gifted. Uh, they've been placed in limited liability companies, uh, shares of which have been gifted to the heirs. They have multiple owners. They have family management. The attorneys continue have continued to try to get the assets away from the family, despite this very well established for a decade. It's family business with multiple owners and a management process and a management company. They continue to try to get this away from the family members, trying to dismiss the trustees, bring in professional fiduciaries, sort of ignoring that the trust doesn't really own much of any of this. Gloria, if you could, uh, uh, we're getting uh, to the 10 minute period. I'm sorry. Um, Well, let me go to solutions. Um, a couple things um, occur. There have to be penalties for perjury. A lot of this going on is false statements uh, with perjury occurring. The second thing is there need to be fee justifications, which are um, a justification of how the fees actually benefit the conservatee. Santa Clara County, where I live, um, has what's called local rules of court that require attorneys to justify their fees and judges to examine them as actually benefiting the the conservatee. Uh, That needs to be a statewide standard in California. It hasn't yet made its way into any of the reform or the the bills that have been uh, promulgated in California, and that needs to be a statewide standard. Thank you, Tom. Sorry for going on so long. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, I'm going. We're talking about solutions, um, uh, and I'll talk some more about this after our next speaker is finished. Um, Deborah Bookout is a managing attorney with uh, of the Guardianship uh, Advocacy Program at the uh, um, Legal Legal Aid Center of uh, uh, Southern Nevada. I may have something wrong with the name here, but she can correct me. Anyway, but uh, it's a model program that's been established in Nevada after years of uh, uproar and study and and uh, legislation and solutions and so on. And I'd like uh, Deborah to talk about uh, what that program is, what they do, and how it relates to uh, taming the uh, uh, the fee beast uh, and the asset draining uh, process that we see here in California. So, Deborah, um, you're up. Thank you. Um, as Tom mentioned, I am the lead attorney for the Guardianship Advocacy Program at Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. And I just wanna give a little bit of background as to how this program came into existence. Um, As Tom mentioned, there was a lot of upheaval about guardianship in Nevada um, that highlighted through news reports and uh, other means, how the system, some of the endemic problems with guardianship that I think we all agree exist across the country. As a result of some of those Uh, those reportings, the Nevada Supreme Court created a commission to study guardianship in Nevada. Um, This guardianship commission lasted a little over a year. We heard from the public and other stakeholders. um, And as a result of that, reforms were um, recommended to the legislature. Um, I want to just kind of focus on a couple of the major um, reforms that address a lot of what we're talking about. The first thing the commission agreed upon was that having counsel, independent counsel 
appointed for the protected person would provide a level of oversight that had not existed before. Um, and then having counts, that counsel appointed at the outset could address some of the issues that we heard throughout the commission, including um, the payment of fees that were um, exorbitant and reasonable, um, simply didn't benefit the, the protected person and resulted in draining the assets of the guardianship estate. So um, as at the end of that commission, uh, one of the recommendations was to have counsel mandatorily appointed at the outset of every guardianship. Um, and the Nevada Supreme, the Nevada legislature, in fact, um, did pass that bill. Um, it's codified at NRS 159.0485 um, that you can, where you can, you can look at that. And it, it, there's quite a bit of detail involved, but I want to focus on uh, how our office gets involved. Um, the uh, that provision provides that if a proposed protected person resides in a, in a county with a legal services organization, uh, an attorney from that organization shall be appointed to represent that person at the outset of the petition filing. Um, this representation is free, regardless of the assets or the size of the estate of the proposed protected person. Um, to fund the mandate, the legislature also passed um, a, a, a bill increasing recording fees, not filing fees, but recording fees. Um, and that increase in fees uh, pays for the program that we now have at Legal Aid. Um, we have, currently have 18 attorneys in our program. Um, we are the legal services organization in Clark County. Um, 14 of those attorneys represent adults in guardianship and four attorneys represent minors in guardianship. Um, again, our representation of all of these folks is free. We are salaried employees uh, by, uh, from Legal Aid. We do not bill our clients for our representation. So the other thing to, to, um, to remember here or what I think is important to, to understand is we're, we're advocates. We are not guardians ad litem. We advocate for the wishes of our client. Um, we, we, we don't argue their best interests. We, we argue what they wish and what their preferences are. If they cannot communicate their wishes to us, we remain in the case regardless and protect their rights throughout the life of the guardianship. Um, so getting to fees. Again, regardless of whether our client's assets are uh, $7,000, $10,000, or a million dollars. Fees cannot be awarded from those assets unless they're considered reasonable. One of the other big um, reforms that came out of that commission was uh, a provision specifically addressing what the attorney, the, I'm sorry, what the judge's responsibility was in awarding fees and outlined all of the factors that the, course, the court must consider before awarding fees from an estate. So when an attorney files a request for fees, whether that's the uh, guardian ad litem who might be an attorney, whether it's the attorney representing the guardian, we review those fee statements under that provision and determine whether there's an, an opposition to be had. Another thing about this provision is that it made clear that if someone wants to appear or hire an attorney uh, in a guardianship matter, and they want those fees paid from the estate, they must first file a notice of intent to seek those fees um, prior to asking for approval of them. 
If they do not file a notice of intent to seek fees, then they don't get to ask for those fees later. Um, in that notice of intent, they must explain the compensation agreement and outline why an attorney is necessary in this case, and also identify any other rate keepers um, in the office or in the, in the law firm that might be involved in the case. So that's the first thing. If they file the notice of intent and they make uh, and they outline all of the things I just described, they can then later seek fees. That's where we review the fees line by line, each item entry, and determine whether under the statute those fees are reasonable. Um, some of the things we see a lot of are excessive rates for what would be a pro forma petition. Um, we've had attorneys bill at the rate of $600 an hour for um, a guardianship case in which no one's objecting. There are no family members uh, except maybe the one person who's, who's petitioning for guardianship. Um, there's no estate. There's no, nothing complicated about um, any estate planning um, or, and the estate is maybe $10,000. We would argue that's an unreasonable rate under the provision. Um, maybe that attorney spent four hours drafting a pro forma petition. We would argue that that's excessive. Maybe that attorney um, block billed for a lot of their uh, tasks. That's not allowed under the, the statute. We would argue that that's not reasonable or uh, maybe they build for clerical tasks or administrative tasks, which is also not um, billable under the statute. So our provision in Nevada is quite specific about um, what is reasonable or what the court can consider as reasonable or not. So it gives us, the attorney for the protected person, an awful lot of ammunition when it comes to opposing egregious fees, which we see a lot of. So Tom had asked me to, um, to talk about whether this, um, our involvement and our reforms have had a chilling effect on uh, fees and or outrageous fees and guardianship. Uh, and okay, and the answer to I think I, I cut out when we were talking about uh, whether our involvement and the provision had a chilling effect. And the answer is yes and no. We still have to fight unreasonable fees, but many attorneys have sort of gotten on board with the new way of doing things. They've reduced their rates generally. They no charge many of the sort of um, you know clerical tasks, um, and they seem to sort of tighten up their 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 fee statements. So that we have had some successes in that regard. When it comes to the judges, a little bit less success if they're if we get pushback from the attorneys. We also have attorneys who um, are open to to negotiating a reduction in fees. So although we've had some successes we have not had as much as I would like. Um, and to this to date, we have not had any successes on appeal, but we're still looking for that case that will give us some good guidance from the Supreme Court. Okay, we have um, a question, and I'm going to try and um, uh, make my concluding remarks uh, uh, answer the question. The question is, what are the next steps, and how do we elevate this issue to get some real action? So the answer is we have to go beyond the individual stories like we're telling here. We have to document the actual practices in the various courts. We have 58 superior courts in California. And so um, we need to do a major study. And where we document the practices, we document the um, egregious um, um, fee awards, 
excessive fee awards, and take a look at the existing laws that allow this to happen, and then come up with specific solutions that can move us beyond this uh, fee-for-all situation into a different territory. One, I think, is, and Spectrum Institute wants to do that. Uh, I estimate it'll take me personally at least 300 hours of my time in this study, along with this probably be 10 months to 12 months study. Uh, We would have interns and then other volunteer lawyers as a part of this. So we need to raise $30,000 in order to launch this study. Uh, As soon as we have that, we'll launch it and we'll jump right into it. Um, And you can go to spectruminstitute.org. Uh, where you can read more about what we do, and there's a donate button there, and if you can email me and we can talk more about it. Uh, But the specific proposals, one, we need a Nevada-style program to be authorized, that each county can authorize such a program here. The legislature should do that. And then at least we get rid of the fees for the court-appointed attorney. Second, we need to have the, the, in those counties that don't do it, the court-appointed council fees for the uh, conservatee or proposed conservatee should be the same, regardless of whether the county is paying for it or the cl- whether it's coming out of the client's assets. The um, Right now, the court makes the client pay $250 an hour in Los Angeles when they're paying for it. But if the client doesn't have assets and the same types of legal services paid for by the county is at $125 an hour. So the court's more concerned about conserving the assets of the county than it is about the conservatees. There should be no higher fees being paid for the adversaries than for the client's own attorney. So if the client is being forced to pay their attorney $250 an hour, then nobody in the case should be able to get paid any more than that. Uh, The petitioner's attorney or the conservatorship's attorney should not be able to get paid more than that. We also need a Medicare-style control system on hours and rates. Just like uh, doctors don't have to be participate in Medicare, they choose to if they want to, and when they do, they have to go by the rates and the rules and the hours and all of that for procedures. Well, the same is true for conservatorships. Attorneys don't have to be a part of the conservatorship system. It should be a privilege, not a right, And uh, if you're going to be trying to get paid from the assets of the conservatees. So we need to look into that. Also, right now, the conservator is stuck with the attorney appointed for them, uh, mostly rather than uh, one of their own choice. But the conservator or the temporary conservator gets to choose their attorney, the highest paid attorney in town. There should be a panel for attorneys from which they're chosen at random to represent conservators and temporary conservators. And that would help uh, uh, bring some controls into the system. Also, a petitioner's attorney's fees are often awarded um, uh, without proper scrutiny because the judges don't have time to do it. The judges don't have time to do anything. Their dockets are overloaded. There should be a neutral agency to which the attorneys submit their fee claims, and that agency would then review the fee claims objectively and make a recommendation as to what's appropriate. And any objectors could submit their objections. Uh, If there needs to be a contested hearing on it, it should go to arbitration, not take up the court time. Uh, on this. And so these are some of the, um, you know, out of the box type 
uh, thinking um, uh, proposals that we need to put on the table because right now it's just going to continue in the same pattern indefinitely until we come up with, you know, solid evidence, solid proposals, and then we have to have a major push by all of the people here and all of our allies and so on to bring this to the media attention and to get some legislators on board and finally shake up the status quo because the status quo is just going to keep eating up the assets of these estates um, uh, unnecessarily. So how do consumers find out about attorneys who are exploiting elders through these practices? Well, generally, it's hard to do. Consumers aren't going to find that out. Uh, because nobody's going to be telling on them. And if they do, then people are afraid to name names for fear that they would be targeted with a defamation lawsuit. So I'm afraid that that, we're not going to really get too much of that information. Um, Let's say another question. The legislation in Nevada sounds like a good model for at least a first layer of reform. What can we do to help? Okay, we've had uh, some legislators, Evan Lowe um, and... um, Uh, Senator Laird and Senator Allen, who um, sponsored legislation last term uh, on uh, for conservatorship reform. So I think since we already have their ear, we need to convene some type of a meeting with their staffs and then with them about this problem and at least get start educating them on it. I think get them to to watch this forum um, to hear about these cases um, and to read some of the literature that we have. And then I think it, it, this may have to wait until this solid study is done where that's unassailable that can be the foundation for the legislation. But in the meantime, I, I have asked uh, Senator Allen to include in a, a bill that's pending um, the authorization for counties to adopt a Nevada-style um, uh, legal defense services program and conservatorships to be funded by filing fees uh, uh, with filings with the county recorder. And I've started doing some research in that area. So at least that request has been made on a bill that if, if it's added and amended, this could go through and become, uh, be enacted uh, within the next few months and go into effect within a year. So we've already started um, planting the seeds and starting the process, at least in that respect. So again, I call your attention to spectruminstitute.org. Please go there. You can read all of our publications. You can learn more about this. Email me at Coleman at spectruminstitute.org. If you have any questions on this, if you're watching this later on YouTube and want to submit a question, uh, you can email me. And or if you have any suggestions for us to consider uh, for the reforms, um, uh, please do so. Email me and, and um, we'll add them to the agenda for consideration. So with that, I think we're about uh, I want to do my closing remarks. Uh, our thanks to today's speakers and to all of you who've tuned in live. This concludes our program for today at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.